Good morning. If you didn't have to respond, but thank you. <laughs> uh, if you do not know who I am, my name is Joshua Torrey. I'm a ruling elder at Redeemer Presbyterian here in Austin. Um, our pastor is also on a sabbatical, like Tim, um, but my pastor has texted me at least four times with uh, tech issues during his travels. Tim has not texted me once, not even a funny meme, so I assume he's having a great time in Scotland. Um, the text this morning comes from Philippians. It's actually going to be Philippians starting in verse 27. Um, when Tim texted me and asked if I was uh, interested in coming back and preaching, I quickly said yes, because I enjoyed doing it and don't get many opportunities um, at Redeemer Austin. And then I uh, began thinking about what texts I would like to preach on. Um, I was telling y'all's Pastor John that I love the book of Philippians. It did not start that way. It did not used to be one of my favorite books. It ironically used to be my wife's favorite book. Um, and... I have studied it now so much over the last two years that it has very much embedded itself into um, my mindset of the Christian life. And so this week and next week, we're actually going to be in Philippians um, two weeks in a row. If I do bad or you don't like my preaching style, you know to take next week off. Um, but hopefully you do come back and we, can, and we can make it through and deeper into chapter 2 and looking at Christ's life and Christ's humility as an example for us. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and end of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, who points us to holiness and humility. Through the work of your Holy Spirit, now direct us through your word in the path of righteousness. Amen. Um, since we are going to be spending two weeks in Philippians, and given the contextualization of this passage, I thought it would, if you can bear with me, we're going to have a brief introduction to the book of Philippians. Um, the author is Paul, traditionally. It's what the, the text says, and I'm going to go with that. Paul is writing this from prison, and very likely he is in prison in Rome. If you know the life of Paul, you realize that this is his final destination before his um, execution. So this is his final landing spot before his eventual death. And if you're familiar with the book of Philippians, you know that there are 
elements of it where Paul himself is unsure if he's going to make it out of this prison. He does not know. Uh, The famous text that uh, speaks about for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is wrestling with the idea that maybe he's not going to make it back um, to see this Philippian church. And we see some of that here in the text that we read today. Paul is worried for this church because of the persecution that he is receiving is slowly beginning to influence the peace of this Philippian church. One of the reasons for this is that this Philippian church, um, being in Philippi, was actually a little bit more financially prosperous than the rest of the area. They were a colony of Rome. They would have had a lot more um, city structure, richer individuals. And the accounts, both in Philippians chapter 4 and in Corinthians, is that this church outgives every other church in terms of their support for Paul's mission. This area would have been very socio-diversity. There would have been a whole lot of Roman Roman military vets who would have moved into the area after retirement. This would have increased the size of the houses in the area, which would have led to more slaves, which would have led to more commerce. It would have been a very rich demographic and a very diverse demographic. If you know anything about the founding of this church, though, it's actually a very uh, interesting account. Paul, when he arrives in Philippi, is not able to go, as as a custom, into a synagogue. Um, If you're familiar with the text from Acts chapter 16, Paul does not go to a synagogue and preach the gospel. He actually goes to the riverside where he finds Lydia. The reason for that is because there was not enough Jewish people in the city for a synagogue. So while this would have been a very diverse group of people, it would have been highly diverse in Gentiles, not in the Jewish people. Also, The uh, founding of the church would have included the centurion who tried to kill himself in Acts chapter 16. You can imagine how weird of a first Sunday of worship that would have been between Lydia and the centurion talking about how they met Paul. All of this sets up a church that would have been ripe for division and ripe for conflict. And Paul is worried that the persecution that they are facing, stemming from his persecution, is going to pull them apart or cause them to turn on one another as they face this opposition. And so the opening phrases here in the text, verses 27 and 28, give us an immediate Paul response to this issue. This is Paul's heart for them, that they be together in unity of the gospel. And so in the first four verses, 27 through 30, we're going to look at how they have to be holy in their unity. And in the second four verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, we're going to look at how they need to be humble in their unity. Starting in verse 27, we read, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In reality, we could have just preached a text on that one verse, but I wanted you to see the context of the whole of Philippians. Paul opens up with an actual citizen plea here. When he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he is using a very political word to say, let your manner as a citizen 
Let your manner as a citizen be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is appealing immediately to the privilege that they would have had as citizens in Philippi, that they would have been proud of their status as citizens. And he's saying, similarly to that, let your manner, your civil citizen manner, be worthy of the life of the gospel. We actually see an appeal to this kind of citizen behavior Later in the book of Philippians, you're probably more familiar um, with this verse in where he says that we are not citizens of earth, but we are, our citizenship is in heaven. So Paul's appeal to them is to behave in a very citizen-like manner worthy of the gospel. He's saying the truth of the gospel that you all share should now change your life such that your citizenship together with one another is holy and pointed towards the gospel. Now, this is not a citizenship that is alone, just like in Philippi. If Rome was ever concerned about a breakout of animosity or rebellion, they would come in and they would destroy an entire city. It would only take a small group of people in a colony like Philippi to bring Rome down on the entire city and destroy the entire city. And similarly, Paul is stressing to them that all of them together standing side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel, have to be moving in one direction against their opponents. He says that they're not to be frightened in anything by their opponents, for that is a clear sign of their destruction. This is a very interesting phrase here. Paul is, does not clarify who the opponents are. He just indicates that the, the church here in Philippi needs to be so focused on one another and striving towards the gospel together, that they are not frightened by the things that are outside of them. Now, we don't know who the opponents are, but there we can take a couple of guesses. The first would have been everybody that was persecuting Paul. This would have included um, predominantly Jews who had not followed the, the message of Christ, who were denying the gospel of Christ. This could be individuals that are mentioned earlier in chapter 1, around verse 15, who, get this, are preaching the gospel with the intent of hurting Paul. There are individuals out there among the church that are preaching the gospel with the intent to hurt Paul. It could be either of these two groups. We don't really know because Paul doesn't give us any clear indication in verse 28. But Paul's concern is that the Philippians are fearful of them and, it, and that will turn them against one another. He says, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents as you're striving side by side for the gospel. For this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but for you, salvation, that from God. I think sometimes when we look at a text like this, which focuses on salvation, we assume eternal salvation. Um, I would suggest to you that Paul in, in this text is not referring to final deliverance and salvation, but he's actually referring to visible vindication. He's saying that the individuals, as they are trying to frighten you, their behavior is a sign to them that their end is destruction. But your behavior is a sign now of your visible vindication before God. You are acting as a signpost in your striving side by side for the gospel that there is a vindicated body from God. 
This vindicated body from God is uh, not going to have things easily, as you see in verses 29 and 30. Paul continues when he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We're all good Reformed Presbyterians here, or at least I hope you are, or becoming so. We all know of unconditional election, that God has saved us for himself and called us for himself unconditionally, apart from anything that we can do. And I would entreat you to consider that this text supports not only unconditional election, which it says that it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ to believe, but it also speaks of unconditional election to suffering. For it has been granted to you, that's a gift, It's the kind of language we use when we think of something being given graciously. And we can understand that in the context of it being granted to us to believe in Jesus Christ. We understand how that can be a gift for us. But in the midst of suffering, it might be hard to understand how it has been granted graciously to us to also suffer. This is Paul's concern for the church of Philippi. He is suffering. He is in prison. They are hearing the reports of his treatment in prison and are getting concerned. And Paul, ever thinking of his churches that he is planting, is now concerned about them more than he is concerned about himself. He is worried that they will not understand why suffering takes place. And so he tries to calm them by explaining to them, if it was gracious of God to grant to you belief... It is gracious of God to grant to you suffering. He says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So in the face of this suffering, Paul is trying to encourage them to return to the principal basic truth of the gospel. To encapsulate, we actually have to go back to the front because that's where the application is in verse 27 where it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Typically, when Paul uses the word spirit, we think of something like the Holy Spirit. That's not the way he's using that word here. Another way that Paul tends to use the word spirit is in contrast to the flesh, the flesh versus the spirit. He's also not using it that way here. In this area, he's talking about the emotive, source, power-driving element of the Spirit. See that you are standing firm in one Spirit. Does one thing power you all, Philippi Church? Do you all have one mind? Are you going the same way with the same energy? Are you driving towards the holiness of the gospel together? Because if you do this, you won't be frightened by what's going on outside and you will understand why you're called to suffer. Now, I don't know about you, but I think in this day and age, the church has not had to deal with much suffering, at least in North America. That has changed recently, as we've seen our culture push more and more towards a hostile attitude towards the church. And I think this whole section, summarized pretty well by that first verse, can apply to us as well today. There's the opportunity for us when we face oppression from our opponents to not just squabble with the people that are outside the church, but to actually create turmoil inside the church. 
where we do not actually strive side by side, one with another. We don't have the same energy of spirit, one with another. And we don't have the same mind with one another, striving for the faith of the gospel. Paul's message here to the church in Philippi is not that different, I believe, from what he would preach to us today. That despite the rise in suffering that we might encounter, despite the rise of opponents that we might see on the horizon, whether they be um, political or economical, everything that is done as opponents of the true faith is a clear sign of destruction for those who participate in trying to make the church afraid. But for us, as we strive together, it's actually a sign of our salvation. This sounds easy in theory when we just read the words, but Paul in this second section, when he tells us how we can have this unity and holiness, he gives us how do we do it, the practicality. And that is the unity of humility, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. If you're reading from the ESV, which I am, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Now I would like to tell you that Paul um, was always a good author in Greek. But I think anybody who has studied Greek will tell you, Paul sometimes gets a little carried away. Um, if you, if you know all of Ephesians one is basically one run on sentence. Um, and there is something similar here. There is actually no structure whatsoever in the Greek to, to verse one. Um, this is not a nice four segments of, uh, of ideas. It's broken up that way. We see it that way when it's translated into English, but the reality is commentators refer to this as, as just emphatic rambling. You know, you know what kind of emphatic rambling we're talking about. When somebody doesn't quite know what they want to say, but they're very passionate about saying it, that is what Paul is doing in his writing. This is intentional. You should understand that this is a very emotional plea. This is basically a bunch of asterisk marks at the end of a text message. He's trying to grab their attention and say, Hey... If any of these things are true, you need to listen to me. Do you have any love? Do you have any encouragement in Christ? Do you participate in the spirit? Do you have any affections and sympathy at all? If you have any of that, you need to hear what I'm about to say. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Paul is actually appealing to them and saying, my joy suffers when your joy and peace and purity suffers. How do they do this? Same mind. We already saw this in verse 27. The same mind has to be combined with the same love. What is this same love going to look like? I'll I'll just point you to verse 3 and 4. That same love is going to look like how these individuals interact with one another. Being in full accord, being a full agreement. And then at the end of verse 2, we have the, the, the word translated mind again, but it's a different Greek word. The being of same mind at the beginning of, of verse 2 talks about having the same ideas. The mind at the end of verse 2 means having the same end goal. 
He's saying you have to have the same mind. You have to have the same ideas in your head. You have to have the same love in your hearts towards one another. You have to be in agreement with each other in full accord. And you have to have the same goal. Do you have the same goal when you're striving for the gospel side by side? He breaks it down even more practically. We don't even really have to, to do anything but read the text at this point. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Paul has in mind two groups of people when he says this about selfish ambition. He's thinking about the individuals in in chapter 1 who are preaching out of selfish ambition and are trying to get him in trouble. He's also thinking about individuals that he describes later in chapter chapter 2. He says that he can't send these people to the church at Philippi because they don't have Christ's intention at heart. They preach only of their own interests. Paul is thinking about these groups and he's recognizing that the church is struggling because other pastors don't share his interests for the church. And he's saying, for you guys... You want to know how to strive with one another. Do you want to know how to have this same mind and same goal? Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Now, humility does not mean that you uh, beat your brow and make sure that, you know, you think so little of yourself that others look good. Humility is an understanding that you might actually be a better person than somebody else and still consider them more important than yourself. When we look at the example of Jesus Christ next week, we're going we're gonna to understand that quite perfectly. Humility does not mean degrading yourself. Humility means accounting to others higher value. He follows this up by saying, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We can't look out for other people's interests if we don't know what they are. Not doing stuff out of selfish ambition or conceit and looking out for the interests of others go hand in hand. The concern that we have for one another, the idea that other people across the pew are just as important as we are, and more so, is what drives the same mind, the same love, and the same goal and accord. The way to strive together for the gospel, the way to live a life worthy of the manner of the gospel, in fact, is quite simple. It's just to care more for others than ourselves. Now, there's lots of ways that you can break this down practically in application. I think all of us are able to to think of a place or a person or an event where we can say to ourselves, I have done something out of selfish ambition. I have not in humility counted others more significant than myself. But I think that would be to miss the point of what Paul is trying to drive us towards. Paul is not trying to give them a law to beat themselves down with. He's not giving them these instructions so that they sit and they judge themselves and they they beat themselves down with how little they get right. He's trying to encourage them in this, that this is the lived out truth of the gospel. The more connected to the gospel you are, in fact, the more natural this will become. 
This is why in verse 5, which we're about to read next week, he can say, have this mind in yourself, which was in Christ Jesus. It's a gospel-centered mindset. And so while there are a lot of applications that we could draw from chapter, or verse 3 and verse 4 in terms of our own life, your way home today, maybe you let your, your spouse pick where you have lunch, or maybe you, know, you let the kids pick the next movie that you watch. While those things are, are nice applications, that's not really what Paul is getting at. Paul, it should definitely flow out of it, but Paul is talking about an entire lifestyle of attitude regarding our own reflection on ourself. I would say to you that ironically, and this was not uh, in preparation for uh, this meal, which we're going to serve, but just in general, that this Lord's Supper is probably the best practical way to practice what Paul is talking about here in verse 3 and verse 4. When we come to the Lord's table, we come as one body. When we come to the Lord's table, we come as one body, and we know that none of us are deserving or worthy. For us to come to the table and think, well, that person really needs the body today, would be against the intent of Paul's passage. Paul is trying to communicate the gospel truth to them that when we come to this table, we come in shared humility. Interestingly, the Westminster Larger Catechism says that when we come to the table to commune with one another, we do renew thankfulness and engagement with God, but we also renew our mutual love and fellowship with each other as members of the same body. I think as Reformed individuals, we have a tendency to think about the Lord's Supper as a merely up-and-down event, but it's really a horizontal event. The Lord's Supper and what it conveys actually is what resets our mind on these passages. How do we look out for the interests of others? Look to the gospel. I need to be as concerned about them as me. Okay, where are my concerns? I'm concerned about striving in the faith for the gospel. Nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. How do I do that? Keep the gospel at the center. Paul, in this section, is dealing with a church that is on the fringe of dividing over things that are not theological. In the book of Philippians, there are no theological discourses. It's division based upon how they live life with one another. And the reality of the simplicity of the truth is that it's contained in one thing, striving for the same end and the same goal. That same end, that same goal is the same place that we go to every Sunday in the Lord's Supper. It's the same truth that the Supper communicates to us, that none of us comes a step closer to accomplishing the truths of the gospel without the loving help of Jesus Christ. And the humility that that puts on us is the humility that encourages us to count others who have that same need as more important than us. Ultimately, Jesus Christ is the best example of this, and we're going to get a taste of that next week when he says that we're supposed to have this mind in ourselves. But I want to leave you with some encouragement here. In verse 13, 
Paul will say, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The reality of this text, when Paul is communicating all of this to him and he's giving them the encouragement of the task, he ends with, and God is going to do it. He is going to do it in you, church. He's going to do it here at Christ the King. He's going to do it at Redeemer Austin. He's going to do it in the PCA. And he's going to do it in churches across the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we ask that you would turn our eyes towards one another as we are focused on your son. We ask that you would help our hearts to be tender as your son's heart was tender, that we would forsake the, the ambitions that we can place in our lives and seek the interests of others the same way your son um, set his eyes on us and gave himself up in humility for us. We ask that you would encourage us now and throughout this week to love one another in a way that would glorify your son, a manner of life worthy of the gospel. And in his name we pray. Amen.